and welcome to the Rethinking Leadership podcast series. I'm Jude Jennison, host of this podcast and founder of Leaders by Nature, a leadership and team development company. I believe that leadership is about who we are being as much as what we're doing and that when we combine our brilliant minds with the emotional engagement of the heart, we can solve all of the world's problems. In this podcast, I interview leaders on their experiences of disruptive change and ask them how leaders can position themselves for the future of business. Find out what this week's leader has to say. This week, I had the privilege of interviewing Derek Redman, a former British world and European champion athlete. Uh, His sport was the 4x400m relay, and he raced extensively in the 1980s and 90s. Derek talks about how he and the relay team bucked the trend and took risks to gain the edge on their competitors, as well as overcoming injury and switching what he knew about sport to building a business. There is so much of value in this interview. Have a listen. Hi, Derek. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Yeah, good. Nice to be here. Yeah. Um, I'm dying to hear your story because you obviously straddle the, the worlds of sport and business so can you tell us who you are and what you do and why you're here okay so uh, my name is Derek Redman uh, a former athlete former British European Commonwealth world champion and two-time Olympian athlete um, obviously I couldn't run for the rest of my life which was a real shame I had to get older wider and slower so um, during those older wider slower years I ventured into the business world um, and um, through lots of trials and errors, and believe you me, there were some serious errors, um, I've become a, a motivational speaker, a business performance coach, uh, a one-to-one coach, and also a, a, an, a, an author. Um, and really what I try and uh, help and teach people is that common bond between sport and business and the mindset that it takes to be successful in the world of sport actually pretty much the same mindset that it takes to be successful in the world of business. And as I say, I kind of found that out, um, oddly enough, the, you know, the hard way. So that's um, what I'm pretty much up to now. I have been doing that for the best part of 23 years. I have been retired a fair few years now from professional sport. So, and I love, I love what you say about you've learned the hard way, because I think that's where we get our best lessons, isn't it? Is it's from where we're blundering our way through and, messing it up and recovering from it and going crikey I don't want to do that again absolutely what have been what have been some of the lessons that you've learned along the way the ones you want to share (laughs) (laughs) wow there are so many lessons I mean first of all I will say um that you're right I I think for us as as human beings some of the best lessons are learned by us you know trying things and here you go here's a lesson that I've already learned you know one of the things I learned um, from my dad many many years ago and you might hear me reference my dad quite a lot because he's massive influence um, in my life not just in my sporting life but in my life and I can remember once um, I was 15 years of age um, not long turns to the 400 meter event and I was uh, number two in the country but I was racing the guy who was number one in the country and he'd beaten me I'd raced him seven eight times and he'd beat me seven eight times uh, I'd never ever got the better of him. So for this particular race, we decided to adopt a different tactic. And I say we, it was a conversation between my dad and my coach and myself. But obviously I was the one doing the running, but it was the royal we. And um, uh, I came up with, they came up with, we came up with a new idea of a, a new tactic, which was basically to run the first half of the race a lot quicker. 
And I was really nervous about running this race. And my dad kind of could see before the race that I was really nervous. And he said to me, why are you so nervous? And I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm racing this guy. Plus, I've got to try this new tactic out. And my dad said something to me that I still use today. He said, look, don't worry about it. You're not going to lose this race. And I remember looking at him thinking, why is he so sure? And he said, one of two things are going to happen. You're either going to finish first or you're going to learn something. Only if none of those things happen, then you would have lost the race. Now, I got beaten, but I did learn a very important message and uh, lesson, and that was not to go out so hard in the first 200 as I did. I mean, I went out at a suicidal pace and I did get in front of him for the first 200, but he came back past me. And it's something that I use today. So, you know, to answer your question, the first thing that, you know, you've got to try these things. You know, I've worked with so many companies and organizations and they come up with these fantastic ideas. And in theory, this will work, this will be good. And this will be, and then actually, that's where it stays. An idea on a bit of paper, on a whiteboard, in a boardroom, and it never gets tried. And, you know, I'm a massive believer that I'd rather somebody try and fail than not try at all, because it might just work. And actually, it's the way that we as humans develop by trying these things. You know, if you look at scientists, you know, there's that image of a mad scientist trying to, you know, uh, I don't know, um, invent something and he keeps on trying things and it doesn't work and he tries again and it doesn't work. And, and all of a sudden he gets that eureka moment where it works. Well, that only happens if we keep on trying. So, um, I mean, there's, there's a million and one things that I've learned, but, you know, for starters, that's something that I'm really keen on doing is trying things and if it fails you can learn something from it yeah um, and i think it's it's tricky isn't it because in it you know organizations talk a lot about wanting to be innovative and creative and to disrupt the market but the only way you can do that is to have a go at doing something different absolutely and there's so much fear around that isn't there of if you do and i can see how particularly in a race that you've only got one shot at that race haven't you yeah, Where, yeah you know if if it doesn't work you could you could walk away without your gold medal or without you well yes you could but you would try these things at races that weren't necessarily got gold medals you know um as as, as you know as, as the prize so you you find these other races um and it's no different from in business you know um there are opportunities to try things on a much smaller scale mm. before you before you upscale it and and, and transform the whole country um you know one of the stories that i tell a lot is about the the four by four 100 meter relay team back in 1991 when we did something totally different it might seem small but it was huge and there's myself chris akabusi john regis and roger black and we were told the order to run in which was the standard rule of thumb fastest man last second fastest man first and the other two in the middle and we completely switched it around against the wishes of coaches and goodness knows what who didn't really think it was worth risking because we had a good chance of winning a silver medal and one of the coaches said look we don't want you to risk the silver and we said well we don't want to not risk the silver but we want to have a go for the gold you know and there's a there's a difference and guess what if it goes wrong we'll get the silver so in our eyes and we ended up changing the order winning the world championships it was the first time a u.s team had been beaten at that level in 56 or 57 years and it it changed the way that coaches thought about their order in four by fours they're no longer stuck to that fastest man last second fastest man first they started mixing it up depending on what they had and what the opposition was like and if you want to take that one step further there's a guy called dick fosby um you may or may not have heard of him 
1968. He was the number two high jumper in his, in his university. The number one high jumper, a guy called Steve Kelly, was also the number one high jumper in, uh, in America and was expected to go to the 68 Olympics and win gold. He used a straddle technique. Dick Fosbury, much taller and slimmer, um, didn't like that technique. So he came up with a technique where he ran towards the bar in an arc and then jumped over it backwards. Name, nicknamed the Fosbury flop. The flop, yeah. He went on to win the Olympic gold medal in 1968, jumped two meters and 24, broke the world record. And from that day onwards, nobody has ever used the, um, the, the straddle technique. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's a saying that I use when I'm on stage, and that's the crazy ideas of today become the norm of tomorrow. Mm. Um, and they are deemed crazy. You know, if you look at Steve Jobs, if you look at Elon Musk, there were times when people think, I know Steve's no longer with us, but certainly Elon Musk, they think the guy's a bit cuckoo. Mm. But actually, he's possibly 15, 20 years ahead of all of us. And he's prepared to make these gambles, if you like, and take these chances and make these changes. And there's no, no coincidence that he is where he is in this world. Yeah. I mean, I guess we need that balance as well, don't we? Because we need those crazy thinkers and those crazy ideas. But we also need the people who are going to be the steady ones who execute it. Uh, absolutely. And you <laughs> also... are all completely crazy, the world uh, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But you also need those people to say, hold on a minute. I like the idea, but you can't go that far. But let's, you know, but yes, so you do need that. And it's not just a case of having some crazy harebrained scheme and, scheme and going for it. Mm -hmm. But there, you know, but there are times when more often than not, people are, are not even prepared to go down that route. Yeah. Let alone maybe curtail that route a little bit and maybe only go 40, 50, 60% of the way there. Mm -hmm. And that's part of, you know, you know, part of the issue. And it does take a brave person. You know, I'm not saying it's the easiest thing, but, you know, the rewards are good. And if it has gone wrong, you ask the questions, what did I do? What didn't I do? And maybe you can then use that as a as a test bed to make it even better. So do you think that continual learning is something that is ingrained as part of being an athlete? Um, yes. I mean, you know, it's, it's continual learning. It's also continual um, sort of um, advancement because we all want to get faster, stronger, jump higher, jump further, you know, and it's not just in the sports. It's also in the sporting uh, equipment, the manufacturers of sporting equipment. They want to make the lightest, strongest equipment. You know, you've only got to look at Formula One, the way that that develops every year. And cycling. You know? And cycling is another sport, you know. Yes, cycling, you know. Every year they're making, you know, ad ad advancements and even down to swimming, the, you know, the swim trunks and the suits that they wear, the materials that it's made of. And, you know, um, there's even illegal swimming outfits now because they, they're claiming that it gives you too much advantage, which you can't, you know, believe. And, you know, it's, so it's crazy. So, yes, you know, in sport, we are always looking to try and improve what we do, um, whether that's, as I say, through equipment, through our training, through our diets. Uh, through our knowledge and understanding of, you know, of the human body um, and through technique. So, and this is continuous, 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 because there is no real, um, pardon the pun, finish line to how fast you can run, how far you can jump or throw or how high you can go. You know, we don't know where that ceiling is. Mm -hmm. So it's a natural thing in the world of sport to, to, to constantly push yourself and push to use a flying uh, terminology, the outside edge of the envelope, as, uh, as, as an old saying was uh, in, in the, in the um, flying terminology. Um, and we're always looking to do that. And you do walk a very fine line between being 
bang in shape and in the best of your form and actually going over and possibly getting injured because you've overdone it. Um, and it is a very, very fine line. But as, as, as sportsmen and women, we're prepared to, to uh, walk that line or at least get as close as we can to it because we all want to be you know, the best in the world. Well, and I guess we have to do that in, in business. So we'll come on to that in a moment. But what was it like for you transitioning from the world of sport to the world of business? Um, it was tough. Um, very tough. Very lonely. Um, I actually deliver a presentation just on that, that transition from sport to business. It's a real tough uh, situation to go through. And you go through a, a loads of different stages, you know, um, um, and they can be quite lonely, you know, um, you know, the first sort of stage that you kind of go through is, you know, you don't believe that your career's over. No, it's not. No, no, no. It could be a coach saying, thank you, uh, Jude, you've represented your team for, for the last 10, 15 years in your country and this and that. But, you know, it's time for you to think about hanging up your boots, whatever the case may be. And, you, you, you know, now I've got a couple of more seasons left in me. So you fight that and you may then start looking at playing in lower divisions or going to different teams and this and that. And, you know, you've got to kind of accept that, you know, that, you know, that situation. Um, and it be really hard when you've been right at the top of your game. Because, you know, if I think about in business, you, you're, you're constantly, hopefully, progressing until the point where people retire. Yeah. Uh, whereas, actually, you retire from sport at a much younger age when you almost feel like you're just getting started, I imagine. Well, you retire from sport at a much younger age or you're forced into retirement, as I was in athletics. You know, I was told that, you know, my injuries were too severe. I'm never going to come, as I was told, my you know injuries are so severe i'm never going to compete for my country again and you know i found that you know hard to believe and uh, i did exactly what i just explained and i ended up getting involved in another sport and i did play basketball for england on, on one occasion and i did send the surgeon who told me that i'd never compete for my country again a photo of me playing basketball for england which was a, a bit of a two fingers up to him for you know for giving me that that, that bad news um but it is tough uh, and m every sportsman the majority of sportsmen and women who retire from sport, no matter how good they are in their game, there's very few that can then retire and never have to do anything again. There are a few, obviously, in the much more higher paying sports, you know, world football, Formula One, tennis, golf, great. But the majority of us actually have to think about something else to, you know, to do. Um, and I went through a few stages of not knowing. I started off doing a bit of personal training because it seemed the obvious thing to do. And then I organically found myself um, setting up a business um, making and manufacturing gym equipment um, okay. with, a, with a, a very good friend of mine and we started off quite small um, and the business grew and we became pretty successful um, in a, quite a short time and then in just as much time as we went from here to there we went from there all the way back down and the company went bankrupt and I personally went bankrupt for 2.7 million pounds lost everything houses cars the works and that was a massive massive blow as you can imagine um as big as blow as i've ever had in my athletics career and so was that harder than um than ending your athletics career then i wouldn't say harder it was almost a continuation of oh god not again you know the bad luck was following me um you know and so it didn't feel like it was any harder because it was different it just felt like there was all these things just one after the other after the other after the other um and i it was quite funny because during running the company was called olympics 
um, you can possibly guess where I got the name from, Olympian and Pectorial. So, and um, you know, I ran that, we ran that, and from my point of view, I ran you know my part of the business, if you like, as I thought how businessmen should be running a business, you know, and I didn't relate it to anything I did in sport. When I had to reinvent myself again and I got into the speaking world and that came around as a result of going bankrupt. I got invited to out to um, uh, Florida to speak at an event called the Turnaround Association Conference. And it's basically a load of dragons that get together and they invest money into companies that are, you know, on their way down or you know, going bankrupt and they invest and either build them back up and keep them operate them or invest and sell. And I got asked to talk about my um, experience. And, you know, I'd been also been done, had a couple of little speaking engagements. But anyway, I decided to set, you know, to start off my speaking business. And I thought, I'm going to do it the only way I know how to. And I just treated it the same way as I did athletics, thinking, ah, whatever happens, happens. And that's become more successful than what the gym and fitness equipment business. And that's why I ended up and have ended up where I am now. And, and, and like your good self, I, I wrote a book a few, a couple of years ago called sport is a business and business is a sport because I don't believe there's a difference between the two. Um, so now when people say, how did you find that transition between sport and business? My answer to them is now I didn't change. I just, you know, I didn't have to transition. I just changed events. And that's how I kind of look at it. All I've done is changed events. Um, so yeah, I mean, I went through it, um, as I say, and it was, a a, a, a fair few years to get to you know um, happy that I'm no longer professional in the world of sport to happy to where I am in what I'm doing in the world of business mm. and in between that it could be a, a, a number of years you know in my case it could be seven years or so to get from that point to you know to the other point to where I'm happy because there's another big thing that gets in the way of sportsmen and women and that's their ego you know in the world of sport I was one of the best in the world, um, you know, fortunately. And then when you get into business, your mindset and your attitude is great. Um, and that drive and, and motivation. And you're as good as a school leaver as when it comes to business, because you've not been in that world. You've, you've, you, you've not had to worry about that. And, all your peers who you went to school with are now MDs, CEOs, owners of their own businesses, and you're Greek. Being behind a real tough. It's a it's a it's a tough journey to you know to take. Yeah. So I lost you. I lost you for a bit there. I think the uh, the network went a bit a bit iffy. So let me just summarise. I think what I heard you say was that. Um, when you're uh, when you're starting out in business, you're like a school leaver, and you've got all your peers from school who are now become MDs in businesses, and you're all starting. So that must be a real blow to the to the ego. I mean, you know, notwithstanding you've got two Olympic medals and goodness knows how many else as well. So notwithstanding you've achieved massively in a different world, but in the world of business, you're starting in a different place, aren't you? Did, did that help you in some way? Were you able to look at um, other people as role models before you and say, yes, yes, that's somewhere to aspire to? 
I mean, yes. I mean, obviously, we all have role models, whether you're involved in sport or you're not. You have people you admire, whether it's in the world of sport, the world of business, the world of acting, the world of singing. It doesn't matter. You know, we all have people that we, you know, that we kind of admire and, and to some degrees that we would uh, uh, follow, I guess, would be the right, um, you know, the, the right word. Um, so, yes, I had that. And of course, you know, we, we, we did have what we've done in the world of sport. And they're great door openers and conversation starters. Um, but they don't guarantee any success in business. Um, they might give you a bit of an edge. They do give you a bit of an edge. And as I say, you know, uh, it, they're great door openers. And it, you, we do have possibly the opportunities to get into doors and speak to people that a lot of people um, may not be able to do, even if they've been in work for way, way more years than, than we have. So there are advantages. Um, but as I say, it doesn't guarantee anything, um, but it's, it certainly does give you, a, you know, a little bit of a, you know, it can give you a little bit of an edge when you're, you know, when you're, you are trying to find your way. Mm. So um, thinking forward then, obviously we've just gone through the most bizarre time, I think, of our entire lives with the global pandemic of COVID-19. And as we're coming out of that, um, I think a lot of businesses are now starting to look and say, where, where, do we, where do we need to position ourselves? What do we need to do differently? Um, how do we structure the business? How, what, you know, what do we do with the people? Where are we going? What, what do you think from a, from a leadership point of view and as a, as a motivational speaker and, and coach, what do you think businesses should be looking, looking at? Uh, well, I think one of the things that we need to look at is look at what we've had to go through um, in this last 105 days or however long it is, 100 days plus, you know, and we've all had to make some serious changes in the way that we, we, we live and operate. Mm -hmm. um, and some of those have not been great. Some of them actually have made us realize, hey, I, you know, we can do this, we can do that. We don't need this, we don't need that. And so I think there's a lot to be learned. You know, if you take some of the obvious things, you know, the, the working from home thing, it was always seen as a bit of a, you know, a, a real pioneering thing. That, oh yeah, we let our employees work from home. Oh, you're brave, aren't you? I mean, how do you police that what they were doing? All of a sudden we've had to do it. And the policing of people's work hasn't been the issue. No. Um, it's, you know, that is, I haven't heard any reports or anything where people have not been doing what they're supposed to be doing. No. So that's kind of answered that situation. It then, you know, asks the question, do we need to bring everybody into an office on a Monday morning and they stay there till 5.30 and then repeat until Friday 5.30? Actually, we don't. Now, I'm not saying everybody should work from home because not everyone's got the facilities to be able to do that. Mm. But, you, know, you wouldn't want someone balancing their computer and a little flat on their knees and they've got kids running around. So it's not, you know, conducive for everybody. However, all of a sudden it brings in this, new option for be able to offer that as somebody as, as something that they, they, they can do you know i the people again that i've spoken to their quality of life has gone up yeah since they've been working from home um i mean here's a real silly one um you know okay the pubs opened again at the weekend um but up until saturday there was no pubs bars or anything like that um we've had at home here for a, for a number of years a really nice bar outside and a barbecue area and goodness knows what the amount of people that i know some have taken a bit of um influence from us but have built themselves a little place to sit in even a little bar 
um, yeah. where they can sit with their loved ones, husbands or wives, and this and that. And uh, my wife went to her friends, and she's built this little prosecco bar in the in the in, the, in it, basically in the shed. And it's got, is it? People are being a lot thinking a lot more different and doing. And I know that seems a bit silly, but it it proves the point. Because we were forced into this situation, people have been thinking a different way. Some good has sort of come out of this. So going back to you know, your question, I think you know, from a company point of view, one of the things that we've had to do is learn to adapt. Mm. And some of the things that we've adapted with doesn't stop here. Mm. They continue to be used. And yeah. again, that happens you know, in, 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 in sport. Sometimes things happen, it works, and someone says, wow, we're going to bring that into our repertoire for you know for one of a of, of a better face so and then suddenly everybody's doing it aren't they absolutely and, and, and then, I, yeah and i think it goes back to your point you made earlier around um taking bold action of having a go and i think when we're in a crisis we have no choice but to have a go because we had to you know we had to have a go at remote working because there wasn't another option correct um and what I'm hearing from that and, you know, what I've heard from lots of places is that it's worked really well. And, and yes, there are places where it doesn't work so well, but in many ways it's worked really well and people haven't had to police it and, and levels of trust have probably increased dramatically. Yeah. So, you know, I'm wondering whether going forward as, as organisations, you know, leaders need to start thinking about, well, the things that they're, worried about well i don't know if that's going to work or not maybe we maybe we should just be having a go lots more flexibility lots more adaptability and creativity yeah. because actually we've proved that when we do it we're actually really good at it absolutely you know we all can do things that we don't we don't believe we can do when it happens our backs were up against the wall mm. um and we as you said we had no choice so you know we had to do it and i'm just using that one particular thing as an example i'm sure myself included and lots of people have become much more tech savvy and it savvy in the last three months because we've had no choices i used to work in my office with a laptop i've now got an imac and two other screens and all sorts going on in here because it's it's the way that we have to operate and i have a thing called an adapt model um so i use the word adapt as, a, as an acronym and the the a stands for acceptance accepting the situation we're in no point in trying to fight it. We're here. Save your time, effort, energy, and in some cases money, because we're here. Yeah. Okay. Once you can do that, then you've got to think of what's the direction I'm going to go into. So you then start thinking about other options and then it brings on to the next A, which are alternatives. Are there any alternatives that we can, we, we can uh, uh, use and, uh, and whatnot? And then after that, you've got what's the plan now? What's the process? And once you've got that ironed out, you then look at the transition from taking all of that onto paper and actually putting it into to action. But interestingly enough, it doesn't stop there because once we've done this and let's use the working from home again, that throws in a whole load of new challenges. Yeah. So you go around that adapt model again yeah. and you go around there. And so it's a continuing uh, circle. You know, um, it isn't just a one-off thing. It's a continuous change, mm. um, you know, adapting. And it happens in sport. You know, um, if I'm running a 400 meter race and, there's a massive wind, you know, in my face as I'm going down the back straight. I kind of got trying to change the way that I run a little bit. You know, if it's hailing down with rain, I've got to look at the spikes that I'm wearing, the actual little spikes in the bottom. Are they the right ones for that weather, for the grip that I'm getting? My, you know, the rain's cold. It's going to splash on the back of your hamstring. So is that going to make you seize up a bit more? Do you wear different equipment? 
there's all these sort of things that we have to adapt to when it happens you know getting injured that changes your program leading up to an olympic games you know we have situations where you can be not running quick enough at one point actually being too quick is also a bad thing because you don't want to peak too early so there's all these things that we have to continually do and adapt and and as i say use that model that i um uh, that i just explained to make sure that we're on top of it and i liken it to i'm going back to an f1 car when you see a car lewis hamilton driving the car around a circuit there's about 20 people in the garage behind him monitoring all these screens because the car's telling them so much information mm-hmm. and it's making those little you know little micro moves to, you yeah. know to, to 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 make the car do what it's supposed to do which is ride around that circuit as as quick as it can and that's what we're doing but just not at that pace yeah and i think there's something really valuable in there in in that people often become static when they're planning Whereas what I'm hearing with, with all of what you've just described is there's continually moving forward in the process of the adapting. So you're adapting in flight. Absolutely. I think often organisations and, and leaders and teams get stuck in this, oh, let's just sit back and let's call a meeting. Let's all scratch our heads and let's, let's all think. And then, and then we'll come up with a plan and then we'll act. What I'm hearing with you is much more forward motion of adapting in flight and i think that's going to be so crucial going forward isn't it of well, well, well it is because you know going back to something that you you know you're an expert on is uncertainty we don't know one if there's going to be a covid 20 and i use that you know half-heartedly you know we don't know if there's going to be something else completely new we don't know what the next challenge is that's going to be thrown in 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 front of us it could be minor it could be major but we've got to be prepared to you know to move and you know people always say oh you dodged a bullet there and i said well i don't want to dodge a bullet i want to dodge the whole arsenal because if what you know there's a good chance it's not going to be one bullet that's thrown that's fired at us there's going to be lots of bullets and you know um there's no point in a swing coming towards you and you go i missed that then all of a sudden it goes up comes back and hits you on the back of the head you want to make sure that you're out the way for all of the swings, you know, that, that, that's, that's coming. So it's it a is a continuous It's a very different way of leading, isn't it? Because it's much more fluid and it's much more responsive rather than, right, let's have a plan, let's go execute it, let's sit back and review it and then let's start again. You know, that, that has a very linear structure. What I'm hearing is this is, this is fluid and, and a bit all over the place and, and yet... It, it's, it's, but, but I mean, it's, it's you, do, you can have a plan, of course. You need to, and you need to have a plan. Yeah, you need to have a, a bit of a structure. Of course, you do, but you also need to be quite flexible to be able to move around it. So, one, it is a bit more fluid, but I also believe it's a lot more inclusive, because when someone comes up with a plan, everyone's got their role within that plan, and they just get on with it. And oh, I'm uh, something's happened here. What do I do, boss? Type situation. But with a, you know, with with your plan, the blueprint set out, but this. Uh, ability to be fluid and, and have a bit more autonomy so as things are happening being able to say look this is happening or I foresee this happening we might need to change this you know people say you, the leaders as well can be saying yes I agree we need to look at this or why do you think that I don't and it becomes a lot more fluid because no business is straight bang 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 you know nothing no. There's no business that I know that, you know, is guaranteed to stick to a plan. I remember many years ago writing a business plan and someone said the only good thing writing a business plan that you can guarantee is by the, by the end of you writing it, it will be out of date. Yeah. 
other than that, there's no, you know, and um, and I've written a, a couple in my life, and absolutely right. So there's no guarantees. You know, we you we have to be prepared and um, flexible enough to be able to move with these things because nobody expected this, yeah. and it caught everybody by surprise, uh, and we, on the whole, adapted really well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, and, and to me, it just kind of proved the point that you know, we are able to do it. You know, we've evolved as, as working human beings to be able to work the way that we are. Um, and, you know, I laugh and joke to people and say, I've made more Zoom calls and Microsoft Teams and Google Hangouts and goodness knows what in the last two months than I have in the last five years. Yeah. It's, it's even got to the point now when I speak to someone, I say, yeah, um, we email, and say, yeah, oh, oh, you know, let's speak next Tuesday. Yeah, is that on the phone or on Zoom? No, don't be daft, it's on Zoom. You know, <laughs> that's the norm. <laughs> in a hundred days, it's become, you know, it's become the norm. So we, we can do it yeah. uh, when we're forced to do it. Mm-hmm. I just want people to start doing it now when they're not forced to do it. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the key message, isn't it? Is keep keep being flexible, keep adapting when your back's not up against the wall because it's so much easier when you've got space to move, isn't it? Yeah. Derek, it's been wonderful to talk to you. I reckon we could talk all day, but um, maybe we'll do that another day. But thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jude. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor to speak to you. Wasn't that a great interview? I loved what Derek had to say about the importance of having humility as a leader in business. He speaks so openly about his failures, learning from them and taking bold action as a way of having competitive edge. Derek is no stranger to to failure and he's picked himself up repeatedly throughout his career. And he's one of the most warm-hearted and genuine people I've had the privilege to interview. How do you role model humility and resilience at work? How do you create an environment where failure is part of the process of learning, both for you and your team, and that there's no shame in it, but there's great learning? That's it for this podcast. I was your host, Jude Jennison, founder of Leaders by Nature, helping leaders and teams lead with courage and compassion to accelerate growth in a way that makes a difference in the world. You can find out more at www.judejennison.com and you can find me on all the usual social media channels. Until next week, keep leading and I'll be back soon with another interview on Rethinking Leadership. 